the top on the guitar was stickered at least 10 years as well. Um, and, and you know, you end up with a much more stable piece. And the next step in the process would be on an acoustic guitar, milling out the neck, letting that sit, letting that adjust, like long before a fingerboard goes on. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This episode of the Loom Innovation Podcast is brought to you in part by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. 20 different flavors of pecans to choose from. Whether you want in-shell, cracked, chocolate, or candied pecans, the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company has you covered. Don't forget about their pecan pies and fudge as well. If you live anywhere in Central Texas, stop by their shop at 2626 Highway 71 West in Cedar Creek. If you live anywhere else, keep in mind that they mail pecans all over the country. Give them a call at 1-800-518-3870 or go to birdall.com. That's B-E-R-D-O-L-L.com. All of the pecan products are grown, prepared, and cooked right there in Cedar Creek by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. Welcome to the Loom Innovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox, and it's not uncommon to have guests on the show that are artists, but today's guest is not only an artist, a creator, and a craftsman himself, but his craft is making beautiful instruments that other artists use to create amazing music. My guest today is Stephen Marchioni. Did I get it? Thank you, Marchioni. And he is an expert luthier. We'll learn about that in a minute. He is the proprietor behind Marchioni Guitars. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I used a big word there. What is a luthier? Luthier is a stringed instrument maker. It's a French word. In English, sometimes people say luthier, but it's actually luthier. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask about that. Is yeah. If someone comes up and says luthier, would you kind of cringe, or he's like, ah, that's just part of the deal? They, that's just as much as they know. Okay. All right. <laughs> but luthier is what you prefer. Then, luthier, huh? yeah. Set the scene. Where are we here today? We're in Montrose in the Arts District of Houston. That's where I have my studio. And I have a nice three-story studio in a beautiful spot. And I built this building to... It basically functions as a large tool for musical instrument making. So the first floor is organized into wood storage, climate-controlled wood storage, um, workbenches, and also... That's where we have our cutting and milling tools, where we cut up our wood, where we split things. Um, and then we have our, our milling machine downstairs as well. So, Okay, and we're in your backyard. Your, your house is 50 feet from here. That's right. It's the best commute in town. Definitely good. You've yeah. got, uh, so do you ever wake up at 3 in the morning and think, oh, no. it's time to go to the shop? No. <laughs> Definitely not. No. Okay. I've heard a few uh, uh, mus musicians say that, man, it's great. I've got a studio in my house now. Anytime I want to, I can wake up at 3 in the morning and go record. That's also a drawback. Yeah, I don't. That's why it's nice to have separate buildings. I can I can imagine. So, what all kind of instruments do you make here? I make all of the guitar family, and I make violins. 
Okay, and the word luthier is originally from the musical instrument lute. Do you ever have you ever made a lute? I have not made a lute. Okay, no. Well, maybe maybe that's next. I don't know. You never know. Uh, so your your education, you uh, went to Boulder, Colorado, uh, Naropa University, got a music degree specializing in jazz. Uh, you got your career started over in New York with some internships over there. Talk about the early years. Early years, uh, let's see, I moved to New York in 89, and at the end of 89, I took a job basically just doing woodworking for Pensa Sur Guitars. It was on 48th Street at the time. Um, that's part of Rudy's music, which continues, but they're now in Soho, and they don't make any guitars there anymore. They're made for them somewhere else. But we... Uh, I was fortunate enough growing up as a kid that in Texas that I had a, f a fair amount of woodworking experience. Like I knew how to use a table saw and sanders and that kind of stuff. And um, that's what I did at Rudy's for like the first year is I just, I shaped bodies and sanded things and did finishing and just very basic guitar making and started learning from there. Okay, and you've gone off to, uh, of course, start your own business, but also Sir has kind of become a name in yeah. the, the business as well, right? Yeah, John has, he actually, I was there about eight months before he left, maybe a little longer. And he went, he actually gave up guitar making and went to California to work for a guy named Bob Bradshaw. And all they did was, it was custom audio electronics, which I st think still exists, but... Uh, Boy, for a long time, he was just making amps and preamps and that kind of stuff. He got away from the guitars. But, you know, you can't ever get away completely. So it started coming back, and he started making more. And um, I see him at the NAMM shows. It, he's really got quite a big company now. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of investors and people in that company. Sure. It's, yeah. So is it true that some of the, the few guitars that he made during that era where he was doing electronics are now rather collectible because they were so rare that he didn't make a lot? That yeah, that I actually, I, I believe I made more Pensacer guitars than John made. Um, or at least that's what Rudy Pensa told me. And there's actually a group of people, there's a couple in Europe and there's a couple of guys in the States who collect Pensacer guitars that I made over three years there before I started my own workshop. So you're doing that more or less as an intern or, or at least a, a very young yeah, trying to learn. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I had other advantages, which is I had a good college education and just a good sense of business. So pretty quickly after John left, Rudy made me the shop foreman just to run the actual business part of it. Of course, I was still learning tremendously as a instrument maker it's not like i was an expert on that but um that gave me a lot of room to develop and i worked on new models with him um talk about that almost regardless of the profession uh how important is it to get a good internship and and get some tutors and mentors early you you can't succeed without them because it's it's a fine art with a tradition of of both design uh, style, construction technique, technique, like physical technique of how to do the work. The things you can't read in a book. You can't read it in a book. So what I did was when I set off on my own, I 
befriended two great violin makers in New York City, uh, Charles Ruffino and Guy Rabiu. And so those were the guys that I really learned the hard stuff from. Um, and I still information share with them all the time. That's, that's definitely a good thing because you're now 30 years into this. So you've got some stuff yeah. you're maybe teaching them back again. Exactly. So uh, there are things that I help them with too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally a good thing. Yeah. So in your 30 years, how many guitars do you think you've made? Oh, it's well over 1,000. Is that right? Yeah. That's a lot. That's. I mean, we've been doing 50, 60 a year for quite a long time. Do you uh, still remember the very first one you made? You Maybe you still have it even? No, I don't keep guitars. Okay. I like selling them. I, I understand. Yeah. The, the <laughs> I mean, it's my profession. Me. Yeah. But uh, any of them you get particularly attached to that you're like, man, this is, I kind of wish I could keep this one. Yeah. Does that, does like, that happen? I've I made six electric guitars. There's one up there. I like that one. So... I mean, it's for sale, but I never, like, tried to sell it to anybody. It's just sort of here. And I'll play it for a while, and then when something else comes along, honestly, I'll, then I'll take it to a show and sell it. We're on the second floor of the workshop in the backyard, and I don't know, the, these floors are, I don't know, maybe 20 feet by 20 feet square is the size of the building, three stories high. And there's uh, five or six guitar cases, glass-covered guitar cases, hanging on the wall here, and he pointed up to one of the electrics. What makes your guitars stand out? What is it that you do differently or, or unique that uh, makes your guitars more, uh, more appealing? Well, w one thing is I design my guitars. I'm not making copies of other people's work. So let's take my Spanish guitar, the classical flamenco guitar. Um, <clears throat> it All the shapes and widths... Um, the basic parameters of the guitar fit within the Spanish idiom, what, what a classical guitarist would expect. But I designed the entire guitar so that all the, the elements of it are working together, from the curves of the body to the shape of the bridge, the shape of the headstock. The label is related to other design elements on the guitar, the rosette. That happens to be a modern one. It doesn't have a... Uh, classical rosette on it, but I, I do do those as well. So starting with the design, that's an important different thing. Um, and then in the construction techniques, um, fanatical and obsessed with building everything the best I can. I want guitars to last long past my lifetime. You know, I'm, I'm looking at them being around in 100 years, 200 years more. So I am uncompromising in terms of all the joinery of the guitar. I do everything with hot high glue, which is like the real archival glue. Uh, most people don't even use that anymore. They just use yellow like uh, tight bond or Elmer's kind of carpenter's glue. What kind of glue is that that you use? I use hot hide glue. It's, it's liquefied, heated animal glue. Is that water-soluble by chance? Um, it is. You cook it in water, but what happens is when you do a glue joint with it, it creates a molecular bond. There's no glue fill in there. So uh, like a bridge on a, a classical guitar, that joint, it's just being held on by the glue. With hot hide glue, if you get a perfect wood-to-wood -wood joint, and you glue it hot with hot high glue, that can last a century, that glue joint. 
if you do it with yellow glue, it's going to start failing, could be five years, could be 15, but there's creep in the glue and it moves. I ask about the water soluble because I, th I think, you certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some guitar makers do that so that it allows them to maybe repair a joint. They, they can just kind of put a little water on it. And that yeah, you, you can disassemble hot high glue, but it's a combination of steam and actually shattering it. So when you break a good uh, high glue joint, it's like breaking a piece of glass. So how long does it take start to finish? If I come in and say, I want guitar X, whatever it is, and I give you all the specifications, how Typically long? five or six months. I see, okay. Is that, is that, I mean, that seems like a long time compared to the- That's Am pretty fast. Yeah, okay, but, but compared to us, now we're, we're getting two-day shipping on Amazon, we want things now. Is, is, is the rest of the industry is about that time? or maybe? Yeah, I mean, even if you went to Martin Guitars and ordered a guitar, it would be at least six months. So I'm um, actually as fast as anybody, really. A lot of uh, smaller, now I, I've always had employees uh, very, very talented people, and that's one of the things that makes my business work. Um, but a lot of very small independent luthiers who don't have any help, they might have a, a backlog of six, seven years, which to me just doesn't make sense artistically or uh, financially because you're making a guitar for the price it was seven years ago. Yeah, and by that time, the customers lost interest or something, right? Exactly. That, that's a long, long time. Where do you get your wood? Where, where do you source the uh, wood and materials from? Oh, it's from all over the world. But, you know, the really good tone woods, most of them I buy from Europe. What are some of those types of wood, the species? Uh, European maple and spruce. I mean, those are just mainstays from violins to guitars. Like, there's a steel string acoustic guitar up there on the counter. And that's actually all made with violin woods. It's quarter sawn European maple and quarter sawn spruce. Then, of course, we need, we have tropical woods that we need to use, like ebony for fingerboards. I prefer um, African ebony over the Indian. So, ebony is a really, really dense, heavy wood. Is that why it's used on fresh yes. boards? It's just to, it's more durable? Correct. Okay. And uh, all the bowed stringed instruments from cello to violin use use that as well. And that's the reason, because you're right on the fretboard. Yeah, and it's, that stuff is, is hard. I mean, it's, it, at first glance, you might think it's plastic or metal or something. It Correct. Is, it looks so weird. Yeah, the good stuff is, yeah. like like on those guitars, is quite dense with very little pour. How yeah. about the uh, some of the other materials you use, ivory or bone or anything like that? Yeah, like the modern flamenco guitar there. That actually has Arabian camel bone as the accent. So all the bone on the guitar is actually uh, sawed camel bone, which is inc it's like ebony. It's incredibly dense, and it's very, very hard. Honestly, quite hard to work with. It's more like working with metal than working with ra uh, like cow bone or ivory. Yeah, and that changes the tools you need and how you yes, use it does. those tools. And all Correct. Do, do any customers come in and maybe they're attached to a particular type of wood and they say, I want a guitar made of this type of wood, and you're like, no, 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 that's not guitar material. Yeah. Um, with acoustic instruments, you've got less leeway for that. Um, but you can make very, very nice electric guitars with unusual woods, and, and they can work well, because let's say it's the, there's a there's a few electrics right there where the, those are maple tops, but you know you can cap an electric guitar top with all kinds of spalted and crazy woods that might not 
that wouldn't work for an acoustic because structurally they're not as good, but they can work very well with an electric. So that's usually if somebody wants something very unusual, I steer them that direction. We're surrounded by, I don't know, uh, guitar cadavers. <laughs> they're <laughs> just parts of guitars all scattered at a, all about in bodies and necks and all the things you might imagine if a guitar factory exploded. Uh, what part do you make first typically? Um, the first thing we do is cut up the wood, uh, size it to close to the size we want to use, and then it goes in the wood loft downstairs in the milling area to go through a few seasons of shrinking and expanding before we try to make it into any guitar parts. And that's an area where I have a massive advantage over a production shop because they don't have the luxury of time and material that I have to do that. So uh, going back to that flamenco guitar there, uh, the cypress on that guitar we milled and then it got stickered for over 10 years. The top on the guitar was stickered at least 10 years as well. Um, and, and you know, you end up with a much more stable piece. Uh, and the next step in the process would be, on an acoustic guitar, milling out the neck, letting that sit, letting that adjust, um, like long before a fingerboard goes on it. Uh, then starting the body assembly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you just build it up from there. That Really, it's, it's just gluing lots of pieces of wood together very carefully. About, about how many, I know this changes per guitar, but about how many total pieces are there? Oh, I don't know. I 100, mean, maybe 50? Yeah, on an acoustic guitar, it could be over 50. On an electric guitar, it might be as few as eight. But, but you still have to do those eight really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of precision work. I was talking to a friend earlier who knew I was coming to do this show. Uh, it was a few days ago. And he asked a silly question, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there anyway. How long is it between a tree and note? Because you've talked about several months of drying time and all of that. I mean, like we're doing some electric guitars. It was some cello backs that are flamed birch, like big, beautiful flames. That tree was pre-Columbian. It had like 570 growth rings in it. So, you know, it can be as much as 500 years. Well, okay, but I guess the spirit of the question was... When it's cut to when I use tree. it? Yeah. Um, for me, I don't use anything that I haven't had in the shop for a couple of years. In, in industry, standard, once it's kiln dried and goes into the warehouses and they let it sit for a month, they mill it right away. So, y you know, you could buy a Martin guitar that it was a tree three months before. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And Martin is considered, I mean, they're... Yeah, no, they, the they don't do that with their expensive guitars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got a weed eater going on here. Hopefully it doesn't come across the mics too much, but if it does, uh, well, we'll have a pretty lawn in a few minutes, so... It's all good. How do you make the curved tops? So you, on, uh, I see some of your electrics back here. You've got the, uh, the, the traditional curved top of, of an electric or maybe even the semi-hollows. How is that process done? Um, we, first you mill the wood, get it all glued up. Um, then you mill the profile of the guitar. And then we, we mill the top up to the process where it gets hand-shaped. 
So it still needs, even if you're milling, you still need a lot of planing and scraping to get the shapes flowing well. And that's uh, probably more art than science, right? Yeah, it's really hard to quantify, which is why no matter how good your, your CAD drawings are, you can't make them perfect. And another reason is when you're milling any kind of curved shape, it's wood. So the wood doesn't always cut exactly the way you would expect it. It's not plastic or metal, right? So you need the knowledge of the shapes to be able to go back and kind of, I hate to say fix the wood, but work the wood so that everything's flowing nicely and deal with any run out or tear or you know, problems in the wood surface. But I would bet it even backs up before that. Like if, uh, if we're building, I don't know, a shed or you go to Home Depot and you almost don't care which two before you get. But in your business, you surely care which piece of lumber you start with. Oh, yeah, I'm super picky. Yeah, I can imagine. Because yeah. yeah. you're yeah. right, it's not like it's a metal or plastic. Every piece of wood is different. It's got yes. its own personality and, That's correct. and cuts differently. Which is the hardest component to make? Um, a perfect fretboard. Why? Um, well, that's the... The neck and the fretboard's what the musician's holding in his left hand. And he has to use the fretboard to make his notes. So if your fretboard and, and also neck, but the fretboard and the frets aren't perfect on a guitar, the guitar stinks. Doesn't matter how good everything else is. Let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from, and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Loom Innovation Podcast on our webpage, loominnovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, loominnovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. We've got another guest here in the shop, Posse. I brought a, a friend here, and he had a question actually in the car coming here about that, about how a guitar feels. How did you phrase your question? You, I've got him on the spot now. I think my question really was, you know, how, what, what is the most, in, what is something that kind of the most important component is making a high-quality guitar? So I don't know if that came across the mic, but he's asking, what is one of the more important components to making a high-quality guitar? Uh, good design, good material choices, and impeccable assembly. But you also asked something about uh, comfort. When you pick up a really good guitar, you just know it's a good guitar by the feel of it. Yeah, so I had, I, it was the first time I really played a high-quality high guitar. I, t I picked up a Rickenbacker bass, and it, it felt like nothing I'd ever felt before. Uh, it was like just kind of super smooth playing and the sound was extremely I don't know smooth I guess and I just wanted to know if you if you knew what made Rickenbacker kind of 
or what made high quality guitars feel that way? So the question is, how, how does, I guess, how do you make a guitar to give it that feel well, of a really it, high quality guitar? Yeah, if it was a Rickenbacker that felt that way, it was just like one out of a thousand. <laughs> like that's, that was luck. Yeah. Yeah. But, but basically, um, now, of course, they're historically known to be like that, but uh, I think what you're feeling there is better machining technology that Rickenbacker has. So uh, as the years have gone on and they've upgraded their CNCs and, and the way they mill, um, it's more precise. Yeah, because when they were handmade, they were awful. <laughs> What's one thing that a typical guitar player may not realize is part of the process of making one? Is there, is there some kind of magic sauce that most users don't realize? Um, most guitars don't really think about the guitar that much. It's more of an emotional um, experience for them. I mean, it's tactile, but they're responding from emotion, not from uh, research and knowledge about the instrument. And frankly, that's if you're a musician and you're creating art with the guitar, that's perfectly understandable. Many of the guests we have on the show are, are some version of, of technology and doing some innovative, cool things. Uh, certainly this is definitely that, but I'm wondering if you have any more high-tech tools. You mentioned the CNC mill. Yeah. Uh, talk about some of the other technology you use that's not the old-school saws and, and such that we would expect. Well, some of the things I do uh, internally with the guitar construction are really important. I use a lot of carbon fiber reinforcements but they're entombed, surrounded by wood inside the part. So, like, if you take a fingerboard off, all you'll see is wood, but under that wood, you'll find carbon fiber. For strength, I'm assuming. Right? Yes, and stability. So I, I do a lot of reinforcements that way. Um, headstocks, necks, uh, it's heels of guitars, so the neck's not pulling up. And... That was one of the areas that I shared with the violin world that's now pretty much become standard practice among violin makers, but I had shared it back, or I had shared that information with Guy Rebu and uh, Charles Rufino, and then they shared it with other violin makers. So it's not known that that's where it came from, but I actually but introduced that. You're shaping the industry then. Right. That's definitely, <laughs> definitely a good thing. Uh, Posse's got another question. Um, so I know that sometimes in higher quality guitar making, they have uh, single body guitars where they're made out of not separate body and neck, but it's a single piece of wood. Yeah, I've done that. You have, what, what do you think was the biggest change in that? Um, it's unique. It's, you know, there's no neck joint at all, so it has its good sides and bad sides. If there's any instability in the wood, you've got real problems <laughs> because you can't replace the neck. Um, however, if you nail it, it's it's just a wonderful thing. You know, it, of course, we're talking about an electric guitar because it's all solid wood, right? Um, but yeah, I, I made four last year, and they all sold like immediately. So, so Posse was asking again. I don't know how much of his questions come across, but asking about the process of making a more or less a one-piece guitar. Where do you get your inspiration for new designs? Does, uh, do, do you, you say you don't really kind of borrow designs from other guitar manufacturers? Oh, but I study historical designs endlessly. Yeah, you have to, because uh, there's a reason why things ended up where they are now. And so, and also you don't want to make 
a instrument that the um, player feels uncomfortable with. It needs to be something that's familiar to them. So the artistry is refining your curves nicely, your detailing, your headstock shapes, but the neck width has to be, you know, pretty much within certain parameters, the depth of the neck. So it it's critically important to understand the historical models. I have in the house a huge library of uh, books about both instrument making and also historical instruments. Yeah. Interesting. So part of the uh, engineering process is to iterate. You have a design and you iterate it three or four times. We do this on our high school robotic stuff. We'll go through three or four designs in a week sometimes. Right. But you're describing a process that, well, maybe some parts of that you're not going to iterate. You're going to count on the last 500 years of iterations and, and kind of lock that part in, but maybe change the iteration to more of the artistic styling of it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So the, but the basic playability, there's really not much more to iterate there. No, and the challenge there is just getting it right. Like, I can't tell you how many times I go to like a high-end guitar show and the guitars may be very beautiful and have like all kinds of fancy inlay work and like weird rosettes and end graphs and this and that, but they just don't play well. So what's the value there? I mean, maybe just to collect it, but as a musical instrument, it's not achieving any greatness. So how do you balance that, though, right? So art is important. You've got to have a beautiful instrument that also plays well. And are those conflicting requirements when you're no. building them and designing them? It's really all one set yeah. of requirements. But I think what happens is people go down a rabbit hole of over-decorating. So they're moving from de design to decoration. And if, if you get stuck in decorating, it's like decorating a cake. You know, there can be a great cake that's just well-made. And, you know, it's a wonderful chocolate cake and it's got wonderful chocolate frosting. And then there's a wedding cake. And they're serving different purposes. So I like to make just a great cake. <laughs> I'm not into decorating. I think we're all a big fan of good cake. This yes. is really, really yeah. good thing. Uh, talk about intellectual property. Can you patent or trademark or somehow... Almost nothing with guitars because there's 500 years of prior art. Um, I, have, I have full trademark protections, and I have copyrights on some original designs, but even those aren't really defendable positions. But yeah, I don't know, someone like the iconic, I don't know, the Les Pauls or whatever, if you decided that you just want to make a, a Les Paul look like, could you do that with no yes. legal ramifications? Yeah. Okay, I see. I, I wasn't aware of how yeah, that worked. Yeah, Fender and Gibson have lost all rights to that stuff over the years because Fender actually had tighter patents on stuff, um, but they never defended them because of the cost. And so at some point, you know, with various investors in the company, they tried to go back and this was in the late 90s, I believe. They tried to go back and shore it up and there was no way. Yeah, the patent laws, I'm certainly no expert in it, but you have to actively defend your, right. your IP at and all they, times. And they did. Now, Gibson did do a lot of uh, legal fights. Um, and the one thing that they were able to protect was the shape of the headstock, but I think everything else is out the window. And that's, that is very much like a, I mean, the, the, the iconic headstock 
uh, shapes. That's uh, correct. You can look at those and just know immediately what the guitar right. is. Right, and, and that's important. They did do that. Uh, of course, they spent so much money with legal battles that it led to their bankruptcy a year ago. So I see. Do you also, uh, let's change gears, do you also do uh, repair? No. Don't do repair at all? If no. someone comes in with even one of your guitars? I will work on one of my guitars, and occasionally I'll get a historic instrument. It's usually people out of state. Um, who have a very, very expensive instrument, and they're afraid to have anybody else working on it. Um, but you know, then you're looking at a restoration job that costs more than most guitars cost. Yeah, and but sometimes people will get a, an emotional attachment, and they're willing to pay that. But but I can imagine that you just kind of don't want to deal with that part of the business. No, I'm not interested. Have yeah. you have you done that in the past and kind of realized you don't want to, or you just never tried it? I did repairs in New York when I started. I did some um, at Pensacura. I, I worked on a lot of uh, D'Angelico and D'Aquisto guitars uh, for Rudy. Um, I worked on a lot of old Strats and Les Pauls, um, you know, between building projects. And then when I started Marchioni Guitars, so that was in 93, my, um, I did do some repair and restoration work for a couple of years, but I stopped. I think it was in 95. I stopped because I realized that you just get stuck there. You're not, you're not really an instrument maker. You're, you're a repairman. I was trying to think of the word in hell of it. Typecast. You kind of sort of get typecast yeah. into that. Yeah. And the other problem is... It's very different to be a repairman and to be a luthier. It's like Salvatore Ferragamo makes beautiful, beautiful shoes, but he doesn't reheal them, yeah, right? So the guy who's rehealing your shoes, he's a different guy. It's a different craft, yeah. Than the Ferragamos, right? Yeah. You mentioned the uh, Dequisto, yes. uh, Jimmy Dequisto. Is he one yeah. of your mentors back in the day? Yes, I was friends with him. Um, our families lived together in Little Italy. They knew each other. One of my um, cousins, she was a great cousin, so two generations older than me. Uh, her husband actually had three Dequistos, or, or actually he, he had three D'Angelicos, but yeah. So are there, um, certainly the people in your business know those names. Yeah. Uh, are there any, I guess, superstar luthiers that average Americans would know and heard of that, that have kind of went, went mainstream? Or perhaps musicians that also double duty as luthiers so when they're not on stage? None that I can think of. Okay. Yeah. So th these guys are all kind of behind-the-scenes heroes that are doing things that, that most Americans don't even, they, they don't really make a big name. No, it's, it's the people who love the guitar as more than just an emotional object and a musical instrument. You know, there are people who want to collect instruments, but it's a different reason why they're doing that than just to play the guitar, right? Now, one thing that's different about my work is uh, a large percentage of my clientele every year are professional players. And they're coming to me for precision and reliability, some of the stuff we were talking about in the construction. And that sets me apart from most of my other luthier peers who are my age or younger is um, they just don't have the professional clients. 
I mean, it's really important because those guys make you up your game every time. It's got to be perfect. They're, they're on stage and touring worldwide. Yeah. Uh, so who are some of the names? Uh, Mark Knopfler has played a few of your instruments, right? Is it yep. I made him a couple of guitars. Uh, another early one who was really great was John Abercrombie, who passed a few a couple of years ago. Um, Vernon Reed from Living Color. He was one of the, the people I made. I think I made Vernon's guitar in 92. So, yeah, there were a bunch of early ones, but as time has gone on, uh, I've made a couple of guitars for Paul Simon. Um, I saw him last summer here in Houston. Yeah. And the dude's 78 years old, and, man, he can still bring it. He's so damn good. And uh, his guitar player in his band, Mark Stewart, has a guitar I made him, a Marchione guitar okay. from 94. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's amazing. I was totally impressed with Paul Simon last summer when I saw him. It was at the Toyota Center. and uh, Certainly he's had a Hall of Fame career, but I kind of didn't expect much with his age. But, man, he's, he's still, he's still so, really good. He's still yeah. so good. It's amazing. Uh, Posse, we'll, uh, we'll put you on the spot here. You're a music fan. I mentioned Mark Knopfler. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Who? Dire Straits. Who do you go out and see? Do you still go out and see uh, live shows with uh, Not So Much? Why? No. Um, because... I've been to thousands upon thousands of shows, and now when my clients come to Houston, they want to come see me and hang out in the studio. So the guitar playing and the socialization is here, not sitting in the crowd. It's, di it's different. You know, that's evolved over time. Was it the Beatles? Maybe one of the old bands. Maybe Beatles. I could be completely wrong in this, but more or less said something to the effect of, do you want to be a friend or a fan? Pick one. Right. right, and so, you, so you're describing I, something like that. Yeah, so it's it's I'm really into my personal relationships with my professional clients, but it's something that is not happening at the concert. Yeah, I can understand. I just uh, I remember now uh, I asked a few minutes ago about any professional musicians who are also luthiers. The one that comes to mind now is Guy Clark from Texas. Here, he Guy Clark he he died a few years ago, but he's well known in Texas, but probably not throughout the country. I don't know. You don't know? Oh, he's, okay, so he, he grew up in South Texas, spent some time in Austin. I've heard his name, but yeah. yeah. But he's, uh, he's had a ton of songs out that other people have made famous. Okay. But, but he's also cool. uh, a luthier that he's, he did most of his life. Uh, what, do, uh, what do those top-name musicians really look for in a, in a guitar? What, do, what is the one trait or two traits that they're really looking for? Um, well, feel, you know, playability, the ergonomic feel of the guitar. The tone, the intonation, how in tune the guitar is with itself, that's super important if you're performing. Um, and, and the tone of the instrument, it's got to sound good. Who's the one musician that you wish you could uh, put a, your guitar in their hands? Um, oh, I'd love it if Lucinda Williams had one of my steel strings. Why? What, the, what about her style or her... She's just fucking awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Totally good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of Willie Nelson's guitar. How about that? Trigger. Thing? Trigger. I mean, it's a, it's a relic. It's like looking at a Roman ruin. It is. Yeah. Uh, Google it, whoever. If you're listening at home, Google uh, Willie Nelson Trigger. It is. It's, you wouldn't pay 50 cents for this thing at a thrift store if you saw it. It's, right. it's so beat up, but it has been. I don't know how many years he's played that. His whole I career, mean, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just is what it is. 
And I love Willie, and yeah. Willie's amazing. I've seen him play that on stage. So I have missed the opportunity. I, I, yeah. He's on my list. I want to go see him. Don't um, wait too long. I know, right? Not too many more years <laughs> left. No. We're here uh, in Houston, and a uh, nice, cl- somewhat cloudy, but somewhat nice clear day. day. But it's uh, decidedly less humid today than it might be on any other June day. But uh, it is definitely still humid. How does that affect your your craft with humid oh, air? Oh, it's it's fine. I mean, everything's climate controlled and humidity controlled. Honestly, when I was in New York, it was much harder to deal with a really cold, long winter where everything dries out because that's when wood cracks. I never thought of the other end of it. Yeah. <laughs> humidity will make wood move a little bit, but you're right. Dryness probably hurts it more. Oh yeah. It's that's way right. worse. It, dryness is catastrophic. Humidity is inconvenient okay. and, and easier to deal with. Yeah. yeah. Air conditioners can, can fix that. Right. Yeah. Regardless of what uh, sells the most, I mean, certainly you're a businessman. You've got to sell and make a few dollars. What is the type of guitar or type of instrument that you really enjoy making the most, regardless of what sells? Uh, the next one I'm starting. There you go. Okay. Always, always keeping it. I mean, I just I rotate through all the different models. I just made a couple of Spanish guitars. I made a bunch of electrics recently. I'm lacquering some archtop guitars. I just finished a violin. So I, I just like to keep it moving, and I would get bored making the same model over and over again. I don't understand how people can do that. That, that makes sense. We're uh, this weekend, uh, Father's Day weekend, the U.S. Open is going on in golf, and uh, Tiger Woods, of course, is back in the mix again. But 10 years ago or so, when he was really in his prime, if you go to the driving ranges on Saturday, Sunday afternoons, yeah. his, his success changed the business. Yes, have you seen that? Is there any, one musician or one guitar player out there that, that because they've got popular has kind of changed your business to maybe give you more business? Or is there a Tiger Woods equivalent? No, it's a group effort. I mean, I, I've got a few guys touring now who are super important, like uh, Leo Amuedo and Mike Moreno. And, and those guys just are constantly, constantly touring, and people see the guitars. So... Uh, Moreno's jazz guy, right? Yeah, okay. and Leo does jazz and rock gigs, but he does tours. Like he's doing the Chris Botti tour, like now. Well, he's done it before, but they're it's a never-ending tour. Yeah, I was just uh, you know the, the golf analogy. You know, several years ago when Tiger Woods was really at the top of his game, is on a Sunday afternoon after he'd win a tournament, every driving range in the area would be full. Every yes. golf course would be full. That's right. And it was just amazing how that changed. Um, the everyday business. But it comes, it comes and goes. You know, there are periods where people are more interested in electric guitars. There are periods where they're more interested in steel string acoustics. And that's why I make all of them. I mean, I, I'm responding to what customers want. So I want to make things that people want and, and that sell well. I don't like guitars around the studio. I want them out being used as instruments. Yeah, that, yeah. and that makes for a great billboard. Having That's one right. of those on stage, yeah. Any words of advice, uh, not necessarily specifically in guitar making, but home-based businesses? Uh, how, how can someone, you know, any words of advice someone want to start a home-based business of any, of any sort? Uh, do it because you really want to do it, not because you think you're going to make money at it. The making money part is something that you figure out, but it's got to be something you're passionate about. If you're really going to be an entrepreneur, whether it's having a coffee shop or making cakes, back to the cake thing, you, you, you really have to love doing that. And then, then you need a good business plan and management and accounting and 
the the hardcore business aspects. So find your passion first, and then yeah. But I don't mean find your passion. Like sometimes I hear people say that, and it's kind of like unrealistic. Your your passion could be something very practical, like I want to be a great printer, you know, and like, but you know, figure out like that you really love printing and you want to do the best printing. Okay. All right. So yeah. That sounds like a it's good it's all it's all about quality, you know, because we're in the outsourcing age and the overseas production. So if you're going to make something here or do something in the states, that's your business. It's really got to be real. It has to be very high quality. You mentioned earlier that you, in your younger years, with uh, some of the shops in New York, that you learned as much business as you did working with your hands. Uh, do you? Do you basically do all of your business work here? Do you sell the guitars directly from you, or do you go to retailers? and? I have dealers around the world who sell my stuff, but I, I also sell direct and take orders directly. So it's it's a combination of both. Helps get your name out there a little bit That's more. That's right. A bit, bit wider. If someone out there is dreaming to become a uh, luthier, how do, how, how do they start? How do they do that? Don't. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> more competition for you. No, actually... If they wanted to do that, they could never catch up with me. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, it's, um, I mean, if you want to, if you want skills, go to violin school. Go to Cremona. Go to Mittenwald. You know, go to the the what's the Newark Newark school in in England. Go go get a four year education in instrument making. Got it. Okay. Well, I remember, and also with uh, Guy Clark, I mentioned him earlier that. When he was young, teenage years, he worked down somewhere near South Padre or somewhere, working building ships with all the old. Uh, oh, you need builders. to be a woodworker. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm getting at. Is that he had that woodworking experience, and he kind of parlayed that into. Uh, yeah, that that's another path. Like my shop foreman downstairs is a master cabinet maker, and he was actually we met because I had him making doors and other parts for the studio for me. And so he's translated extremely well into instrument making, but he'd been woodworking for 35 years already. I'm sure there's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of things that are so unique. To that's correct. That you, you make all the dressers you want, and that's right. not a guitar. No. Yeah. Yeah. Posse, any, anything else? Any other things that uh, come to mind? I think... Yeah, so if you, if you had a... So there's a few. Oh, sorry. So there's a few musicians that kind of uh, that kind of play, like I guess, unique styles. Yeah. So there's guys like I guess Joe Pass who plays every single part of a jazz band. You know, he's right. the percussion, he's the bass, he's right. the chord instrument. And then there's guys like I, I don't know if you know Brushy One String. No. He plays one string instruments and a really percussive sound. What kind of uh, guitar I guess would you make for somebody who plays with a lot of percussion and kind of does a lot of you know hard hitting sounds? Um, I, I've actually made a lot of archtop guitars for people who play in the Joe Pass style. One of, one of my pros is John Story in, in Los Angeles. He's in Jeff Goldblum's band and he's a very, very percussive jazz player and really plays that style. And then the flamenco guitars, I mean, nobody's more per percussive than those guys. So does that make you build the instrument differently if you know a little bit, but it's, the, the Spanish guitar from classical to flamenco is really close. So the differences are subtle. People may, people may think that it's extremely different, but it's not. What's the, what's the number one thing that a guitar player at home needs to be aware of about how to maintain their guitar to keep it from being repaired or replaced? Is it uh, something that we're all missing? 
I think the most important thing with most guitars is to not let them dry out in the winter, like we were talking about before. Cracking is catastrophic. And if it has a truss rod, you want to keep the neck adjusted pretty straight. Um, people who leave necks slack for a long time where the strings are pulling up and they're pulled into a bow, eventually the wood won't want to go back straight. So that's the kind of thing you want. It, it's an adjustable truss rod because it needs to be adjusted, right? Do you, uh, is it, I think I saw online where you sometimes ship your guitars, new ones out that are untuned. Is that correct? Or I mean, I s I'll, I'll lower the tuning like half a step. Is that a Just takes a little tension off the instrument. But it's only half a step, so things aren't really moving a lot either, right? Okay. But if, so if you were to tune one perfectly or as close as you can get and then ship it, the shipping process wouldn't necessarily detune it then, right? It, it, Not really. I mean a little bit. But I, I just, by ear, just lower them to E flat and off they go. Yeah. How do you do quality control? How do you know if this instrument has really got My what ears. it takes? Okay. And just 30 years of experience of, yeah. of knowing how to do that. And playing guitar for another 15 on top of that. So I see. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a lot of experience. Yeah. So if someone wants to buy a guitar from you, how do they do it? Uh, people can contact me through the website. It's uh, markkeone.com. And uh, I have tons of interesting stuff on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm always posting both musicians playing my instruments and also just work process. If you like woodworking and guitars, I have a lot of content out there. So, And I'm easy to find. Uh, spell your last name. M-A-R-C-H-I-O-N-E, markkeone.com. Yep. Yeah. And so some of your social media handles? Uh, it's all Marchione Guitars. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anything else to wrap up with? Nothing. That's it. Thanks cool. for coming out. Yeah, thanks for listening to the Luminovation podcast, and thanks to Stephen Marchione. Cool. Awesome. See you next time. Thanks. Cool. Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live.